4: Welcome to Tales to Terrify.
1: Good evening, Children of the Night. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to our home here in the city. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Come on in. Come in. Come in. And we'll seal the room and let the cool build around our feet. Let it climb to our chins and ears. And yes, yes, it is. It's uncommonly hot here in Chicago. Fifteen degrees higher than normal. Even near the lake, moderated as we are, the temperatures hover in the 90s tonight. Ah well. We'll chill you a bit with some cool drink, with some interesting talk, we hope, and a lovely tale to terrify, and and something else. Then we'll toss you out into the dark in the mug and let you wander alone. Ah, me. Ah, me, I get ahead of myself. Let's pitch right in, though. Martin Munt is back, yes, this week, yes. Yes, I know, he was here last week, but... This week he's here by popular demand and not just by personal whim. This week, we'll feature another of his not-a-regular movie review reviews. This time, Mister Munt assays the latest in the Ghost Rider franchise, films that will never force Nicholas Cage to ask of an uncaring universe, "Why am I not in this picture?" Marty, you've got eighteen minutes and six seconds
4: not a regular movie review by martin Munt. ghost rider spirit of vengeance warning I spoil plot points in this review so don't blame me if you keep listening Nicholas Cage won an Oscar in 1995 this is either an irrelevant bit of trivia or a crucial fact I don't yet know which Join me on my journey of discovery disguised as a movie review. I enjoyed the original Ghost Rider. It was stupid but goofy fun. I freely admit that I enjoy stupid but goofy fun. Nicolas Cage's character Johnny Blaze appeared to be spending the original movie trying to balance his intake of Jack Daniels, peyote, and glue fumes in order to achieve just the right mellow. And for the most part, he seemed to get it right. He achieved stupid but goofy fun. The movie itself projected senseless and demented enjoyment in an alternate universe where all seven of the three stooges sat on the Supreme Court, the whole world looked to the United States for high culture, and Nicolas Cage won Oscars. The horror was weird, but neither oppressive nor nightmarish, and the movie had its own oddball style. So, yes, I expected Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance to bend my brain into the shape of Nicolas Cage's weird but just this side of committable fantasies once again. I looked forward to it. I think now, in broken, blood-stained, and sadly battered hindsight, that my mistake lay in expecting an artist to repeat his art, to expect a repeat of stupid but goofy. And what I got was Eastern fucking Europe, I have never been, but apparently Eastern Europe is not fun. It is rather quite the vacation destination for murder, rapine, white slavery, cannibalism, unfettered predation, mud, disease, flames, unlimited and freely available munitions, soulless butchery, pillage, wild-eyed bloodlust, savage lawyers, dogs and cats living together, random vicious beatings in the streets, unfavorable exchange rates, and eternal darkness, not to mention the supernatural degradation and general destruction, which, by the way, no one ever does. Mention, that is. The casual atrocities and degenerate carnage that trailed in the blood-churned wake of this movie seem to be just about par for the course in Eastern Europe. In fact, if you ever have the opportunity to travel to Eastern Europe, even for free as a contest winner, I'd turn it down if I were you, since I foresee only hideous, eternal, zombie slavery in your future if you do. In other words, Eastern Europe wasn't fun, and Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance wasn't either. First of all, can I say that I can't remember offhand seeing a movie that needed two prologues to introduce itself before? Prologue number one introduced the concept of the movie, which was essentially one long chase scene interspersed with lots of fight scenes. Can I say I didn't need this prologue? It did have Anthony Head in it, as Benedict the character, who was promptly slaughtered like the traditional Arbor Day sausage hog. I considered this a waste of talent, but who asked me? No one, I tell you. Prologue number two explained who the Ghost Rider was. For sweet Jesus' sake, how could anyone watching this movie not know who Ghost Rider was? The six other people in the theater sure knew, since they looked like they owned the six nearest comic book shops. Can I say I didn't need this prologue either? But meanwhile, back at the movie, we caught up with Johnny Blaze, apparently living in the world's largest abandoned roadkill manufacturing facility, appropriately located in Eastern Europe. Why? Why not? We got some quick exposition from Moreau the character, played by Idris Elba, who portrayed one of the finest motorcycling, machine-gunning, mass-murdering monks I've ever seen grace the silver screen. Although, I have to say, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and a Catholic university, and I never once came across a single, cold-blooded priest-assassin that I know of. I suppose priest-assassins don't advertise themselves, but on the other hand, Moreau wore the batshit crazy on his sleeve like neon batshit crazy. Idris Elba played him really well, though, if a little off-the-rails, Vatican Two speaking. So anyway, Moreau got Johnny Blaze on board with the whole elongated chase scene concept, and then, well, we were off. You see, there's this kid, Danny, and he's half-human and half-Satan and... well, never mind. It doesn't really matter. The point is, everybody wants Danny. Rourke, Johnny Blaze, Moreau, his mother, Nadia, Methodius... Pretty much everybody. So let's start with Rourke. He's kind of a holdover from Ghost Rider, the original movie, because he's the devil, but whereas in the original he was played by Peter Fonda, here he's played by Kieran Hines, Karen Hines is a fine actor, but here, for some strange, twisted reason, he played Rourke with a facial expression that looked as if his mother had told him, Don't bite into that dead rat, Rourke, or half your face will freeze looking like you bit into a dead rat. But he bit into the dead rat anyways, and sure enough, half his face froze that way. Or maybe his face looked like a cop had just buried a billy club handle deep up his bunghole and left it there. It's a singular acting choice. I can't help but salute for how he blends all the weirdness of his character into one overarching, unself conscious oddity, as if the Phantom of the Opera had stopped wearing his mask in public and said, I'm out, I'm proud, and if you can't deal with it, it's your problem, not mine. Rourke clearly does not lack for self-esteem, and Kieran Hines does a fine, deranged, evil, and unashamed job playing him. At a minimum, the face certainly makes it difficult to take your eyes off him whenever he's on screen. But despite Mr. Hines' ability to project squinting, wretched evil, here's the problem. Rourke is a supernatural character, but he also acts pretty much like a gangster. He uses guys with guns to get what he wants. Yes, yes, I know, he eventually transforms his chief gunzel into a supernatural gunzel who looks like a leftover from The Matrix but essentially Rourke acts like a thug in a suit. In other words, Rourke is the Natalie dressed personification of Eastern Europe. And in the end, he's not any fun either. Now, here's my problem with that problem. Nicholas Cage was endearingly goofy in Valley Girl. He wore a wooden hand in Moonstruck. Think of it, a wooden hand. Nicholas Cage is a thinking man's actor. A peyote-tripping, glue-fumes-huffing thinking man, but a thinking man nevertheless. So my problem is, what was he thinking? And then it hit me. Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda is the connection here. Peter Fonda played Mephistopheles in the original Ghost Rider, and in 1969, he also played Wyatt in Easy Rider. The connection couldn't be clearer. The word Rider is in both titles. Motorcycles figure in both movies, and Peter Fonda was in both movies. But because the tone changed completely from Ghost Rider to Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance, I figure it must be because the character of the devil changed completely as well. And what did Peter Fonda's Wyatt say all those years ago to Dennis Hopper's character Billy an Easy Rider? He said, You know, Billy, we blew it. The exact meaning of those words has long been debated, but I think Peter Fonda had looked far into the future and seen Ghost Rider's spirit of vengeance and delivered his verdict, thumbs down. I think Mr. Fonda saw the loss of goofiness in the movie, much like the loss of innocence that we as a country have suffered and which is even now reflected in our flaming, bloody supernatural vengeance movies a loss which he, through some sixth sense, perhaps enhanced by his complete identification with the character of Captain America in 1969, could see coming in the far-off year of 2012, and which we in the rest of America are only now catching up to with the release of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, the loss of goofiness and the triumph of Eastern Europe. But meanwhile, back at the movie... Much chasing and much shooting had been accomplished. Many gun-wielding and non-speaking actors had been slaughtered like traditional Earth Day bush pigs by Ghost Rider. Nadia, Danny's mother, played by Violante Placido, had clearly made the top-notch acting choice to appear in a slightly different, slightly more Western European movie than everyone else, no matter what was going on around her. At one point, she even turned into an expert sniper for no reason I could see apparently auditioning for the next Mission Impossible or Bourne movie. But what the heck, why not? Every single man of the cloth in this movie seemed able to murder a Yakuza 12 ways from Sunday with nothing but a boiled egg, so why shouldn't Nadia be an expert sniper? And who knows, maybe I missed something in her backstory. I'm almost certain I was experiencing microbursts of REM sleep during the prologues, so the same apnea episodes could have been happening throughout the rest of the movie. Then there was Christopher Lambert playing Methodius with a face full of tattoos. Mr. Lambert was very weird and creepy and clearly a liar. Why no one realized he was a liar was beyond me, since everything about him screamed liar, liar robes on fire. The only thing about Methodius that really surprised me was that he didn't try to molest Danny before trying to kill him, because he was just that darn creepy. In conclusion, if the rest of the movie had joined Mr. Lambert even halfway down the dark and strange road where he had set up the peculiar, tattooed, moist, groping, sticky, secreting, odd-smelling special place for his character, then this might have turned into a very twisted horror movie indeed, and not just a shoot-em-up, spinning off flaming skulls, flaming cars, flaming buildings, and flaming pretty much everything else in every direction. Except it didn't. But, meanwhile, back at the movie, Mr. Cage did have one extraordinary scene where he threatened to burst into flames with a combination of CGI and quintessential Nicolas Cage facial tics as he rode on his motorcycle and struggled to keep himself in flame-off mode. This scene achieved the only combination of high weirdness and horror that I had come hoping to see. It's desperate. It's silly. It's a full-on explosion of multiple personality overload. It's the best scene in the movie, at least in my opinion. Did anyone ask me? Well, no, not really. But meanwhile, back at the movie, Johnny Blaze actually managed to get his soul back and stopped being the Ghost Rider, which was obviously a very bad idea in capital letters, but never mind. And super weird and creepy Methodius snagged Danny, which was also obviously a very bad idea, but again, never mind, nothing going on here. So everything should have been good movie wise, right? Well, not really, because movies are all about obstacles. So, obstacle, obstacle, obstacle. Methodius got croaked. Rourke got his nasty little devil hands on Danny. Johnny Blaze got flamed on and became Ghost Rider again. Saved Danny. Sent Rourke back to hell. Blood flowed, flames burned, cats and dogs lived together, Johnny Blaze uttered an unmemorable catchphrase, the credits rolled, and they called the whole ugly, burnt-out, Vaseline-smeared mess a movie. And I, like Peter Fonda in Easy Rider, had a vision, if you will, not of the future, but of an alternate reality, where Ghost Rider's spirit of vengeance was set not in Eastern Europe or even in Western Europe, but in America land of deep-rooted superficiality, goofiness, and horror, and still starred the super-creepy Christopher Lambert as one of its villains, but also the viciously odd Bill Irwin and the oddly vicious Tom Noonan, who together played the evil comedy trio of Dickery, Splat, and hoo who were actually savage hellspawn that used humor to steal the souls of children in their evil plan to rule not the entire world, but just the nicer parts of Southern California. Because, really, why bother with Manitoba and Myanmar if you've already got Malibu and Carmel-by-the-Sea? The children, once they were turned into soulless automatons by the comedians' riotous slapstick antics, were controlled by Dickery, Splat, and Hoo-Haw in order to amass metric fuckloads of money, and the hordes of rugrats attacked Ghost Rider whenever he tried to interfere with the financial interests of their comedic empire. Much leeway for both horror and stupid goofiness exists here. Of course, Johnny Blaze couldn't just slaughter a bunch of kids like the traditional Flag Day prairie pigs in Ghost Rider's usual manner. So he would be forced to enlist the help of one of the children's mothers, a scientist played by Violante Placido, to help him stimulate the children's natural rebellious instincts so they could fight the comedian's evil brain influence, perhaps by using subliminal messages hidden in heavy metal music. Wouldn't that be ironic? In addition, Johnny Blaze could be assisted by a quirky but lovable Angelino lowlife, possibly played by Luis Guzman or Danny Trejo or somebody similar. And then the Ghost Rider could suck the souls out of Dickory Splat, and Hoo-Haw in a satisfying set piece of flaming screams and screaming flames and flaming screaming flames. It practically writes itself. Is this alternate cinema reality stupid? Of course it's stupid. But didn't I already say I liked stupid but goofy fun? So who better to achieve stupid but goofy fun than Nicolas Cage, Bill Irwin, and Tom Noonan? Except, I couldn't help thinking that I was missing something. Don't get me wrong, I still thought the comedy trinity of Dickory Splat, and Hoo-Haw was a fine idea, but I felt something about Ghost Rider's spirit of vengeance was eluding me. It couldn't merely be a movie about chases and fights brutally lashed together from meat-headed clichés cherry-picked from Exorcist II The Heretic, hostile and outtakes from The Matrix Reloaded. There had to be something more to it. And then I remembered that scene where Mr. Cage, as Johnny Blaze, threatened to burst into flames, the one truly goofy horror scene in the movie and I realized that that scene had to be Mr. Cage's Easy Rider moment. He called attention to his transitional state, to his almost bursting into flames, because the flames were the truly important thing. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance isn't the meat-headed movie it appears to be at first glance. It's much more subtle than meat. I think Nicolas Cage is playing Johnny Blaze as a comic book version of a Buddhist monk immolating himself over and over again in protest of Hollywood making meat-headed movies. Yes. Yes, I think if you squint at the movie in just the right way, in just that particular way that Kieran Hines was squinting at it, then my interpretation is quite clear. This is a protest movie. Because if it isn't, then I paid $9.50 to see a movie that I could have written in half a weekend on a natural high, fueled by microbursts of REM sleep and watching 72 uninterrupted hours of Joe Besser highlight reels. So, did I like Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance? If I say, no, I didn't like it... Then I'll think about that $9.50 that I'll never see again and I'll feel a cold, crushing sense of despair that will make me want to feed myself my brain one sporkful at a time until I collapse into a degenerate puddle of smegma. But if I say, yes, I did like it, then all I have to believe is that my vision of Nicolas Cage's performance is like a Zen moment, like injecting liquefied Buddhist monks suspended in a solution of pure American pop culture into my bloodstream. And then I'm okay with the movie, even as far-fetched and asinine as my vision may be. So, yes, I liked Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance because of its deep-rooted superficiality and profound philosophy of flame-broiled meat. Well, in my interpretation of it at any rate, or at least in my rewritten version of it, or something, it's a Zen thing. Think of it as a rating of one hand clapping.
1: Ah, yes, American culture's deep-rooted superficiality. Marty, 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 Marty. I see now why some reviewing us on iTunes find we have too much of a hard to slant here. Curse you, Munt. That couldn't be me. I once voted Republican back. It was when I was in Philadelphia, and the GOP candidate for Philadelphia mayor was facing down one Frank Rizzo, the former police commissioner, titular Democrat, and a guy who once tried to put me in jail. Well, that's neither here nor there, is it? Thanks, Marty. Marty, by the way, is the author of Reanimated Americans and a passel of other things you really should buy and read. So, stop by his website. Go click on the link below. Oh, what I said above uh, reminds me. If you are listening to this as a download from iTunes, I hope you'll consider going to the iTunes Tales to Terrify booth in the store there and giving us a nice review even the listener who squinted at our leftist leanings gave us four out of five stars, thereby proving that horror brings us all together in the same big bed. Part of the reason I love this genre is that it takes me back, uh, dedicated naval gazer that I am. I grew up being read to, I learned to read, sitting on my grandfather's lap, following his finger across the page as he read poetry, stories, all of that, more. The words came to life. <sighs> I've, I've told you this before. Pop-Pop was a big fan of the Philadelphia Athletics baseball team and of Edgar Allan Poe. I heard a lot of Poe. And others, when I was old enough, I began peeking into Algernon Blackwood, Bram Stoker, M.R. James, from Lovecraft to Bradbury. The road is long and the voyaging upon it a rich experience. And I believe in the importance for writers and for those who just love the form to know from where things come, to get a look back and see where the ideas, the images, the tropes... That we're using today originated. This week, therefore, we are beginning a series of essays from one Kevin Lucia. Kevin is a teacher, a writer, an all around good fellow, and I will tell you just a bit more about him after we hear from him. Kevin?
5: There are three incidences in particular that motivated me to begin an exploration of the roots of the horror genre. The first happened about a year and a half ago, when the high school that I teach at had the extreme privilege to welcome New York Times bestselling author and creator of the Man Jack series, F. Paul Wilson, and horror legend, Tom monty alone owner of Borderlands Press and the director of the Borderlands Press Writers Boot Camp. They were in town to work with my creative writing students and offer critique and feedback on their work, as well as share some insight into the life of a writer and the publishing industry. Now, when I have writers and editors here to work with my students, usually the night before I take them out to dinner, it's a good opportunity just to hang out and relax, especially because I don't get a chance to get out to as many cons as I'd like to, so this is a good chance for me just to talk to them and talk shop and things like that. But this is Paul Wilson and Tom Montelone. I certainly wasn't about to badger them and pester them to come hang out with me the night before the workshop. So imagine my surprise when Paul called me at home wanted to know if I was busy and if I'd like to come hang out. Of course I said yes. They gave me directions because they were at a friend's house, and they had told me this beforehand. They were going to come visit a friend in the area while they were doing the workshop. So I went there, and I was very quickly introduced to none other than Stuart David Schiff, former editor of Whisper's Magazine and the Whisper's Anthologies from the 70s and 80s. And I was blown away to learn that this genre giant lived here in Binghamton all this time underneath my nose, and I never knew. He took me on a tour of his basement, which was absolutely jam-packed full of all the genre memorabilia you could possibly imagine. Science fiction, fantasy, horror, sword and sorcery, golden age sci-fi, weird fiction, crime, suspense, it was all there. It was like a, literally a Smithsonian of the speculative genre. For The rest of the evening, I had a ringside seat. Uh, while Paul and Tom and Stu reminisced in the old days and they talked about writers and the business as it used to be and as it was now and them growing up, what their inspirations were. And as the night um, went on, I began to realize that I had kind of a deficit of knowledge when it came to the roots of the genre. you know. And there's good reason for that. I, I, I was a hodgepodge reader when I was a kid. I read whatever I could get my hands on. I lived out in the country, uh, so there weren't really a, there weren't any really comic book stores or bookstores out there. I just read whatever I could check out of the library, and even when I came to the horror genre later in life, around age twenty six, twenty seven, I I liked to stick with the big three, as I call them: Stephen King, Dean Koontz, and Peter Straub. Maybe John Saul if I was getting a little experimental. And while they, those are certainly fine quality writers. That was the only horror that I had read. So when Tom started talking about Fritz Lieber and they started talking about Carl Edward Wagner and August Duralith and Robert Howard, you know, and I started hearing these names, I started realizing, wow, these are writers that I've maybe heard of before I've never read. I really need to explore these writers. And it was a very eye-opening experience for me. The second occurrence was actually more of an academic situation. Several months ago, I was reading a nonfiction work called The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. He's an uh, entertainment and media philosopher, and he was studying the popularity and the persistence of the horror genre. And some of the things he said were very intriguing. He tracked the development of the horror genre back to the 17th century and 18th century Gothic novels. You know, as perhaps a knee jerk reaction to the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, and he tracked it all the way up, you know, through the ages. One thing he said really struck a chord with me, though, and that was that in his estimation, horror writers know they're working in what he called a shared tradition, that these writers drew upon writers of the past they were aware of their contemporaries writings and they used those things to fuel them to write their own works and i think the biggest thing is that phrase he used a shared tradition which again I, I really i realized that i knew very little of this tradition you know i knew the popular authors i, I was reading all the current stuff from leisure fiction but had i really explored the, the roots of the genre and this tradition. I knew nothing of it. So, that was another thing that really motivated me. That I really need to look at this and really start exploring this. The third incident occurred this past November at a conference up in New Hampshire, Anthology 2011. We like to call it Anthocon. It's a speculative conference put on by Shroud Publishing, which is based in New Hampshire. And our keynote speaker was best-selling author Brian Keane, And his keynote address, aptly titled Roots, was about the development of the horror genre. From its very beginnings, through all its different phases, through the ups and downs and fluctuations of the market, all the way to the present. And he cited two really important things, I thought. The first one, again, the idea of the shared tradition that horror writers and horror readers especially horror writers, should be aware of the past, that we should allow these writers to inform, inspire, and shape our work today. And he also mentioned a unique situation when he'd come across something on the Internet where several young writers, many of them talented writers, he believed, future of the genre, were debating the importance of Robert Bloch. Will people still be reading them twenty years from now? Is he important in the genre? But then many people in this debate, you know, readily admitted that they had not really read Robert Bloch. They were debating his importance, but they were saying, "Oh, well, I've never read any of his novels; just a back copy of the novels." And the the incongruity of that struck Brian. You know, that was very very ironic that they were doing that. So he really felt that if we're going to be looking at the horror genre and having these conversations that we need to be reading the past and understanding where we've come from before we can ever produce anything new. So for me as a young writer, these three experiences were really important things. They really set off some sparks in my head because I, I felt that, you know, here I am trying to produce my own voice, trying to produce new works. But if I haven't read these old works, how can I possibly know what's new? If I haven't read all the other stories that have come before me, how can I possibly put my own spin on it? So and that was you know the, the foundational for this desire in me to really look back at the horror genre and start educating myself, start reading these works and these different periods of horror and uh, trying to build up, try to take care of this deficit of knowledge that I had inside. So this is the proposal of this podcast series and that will be to look back to the origins of the horror genre wherever they may be because and it's going to be hard really to pick that out what was the first horror story so many of our myths and our legends and our folk tales are they're weird and strange and scary and kind of horrorish and they've been passed down them. Through oral tradition, you know, Beowulf, one of the greatest uh, monster-killing stories of all time, and we don't even know who the author was. It was passed down for, I think, 600 years orally before somebody actually wrote it down. So we're not really going to try to pinpoint the first horror story, but I think we want to look back. Probably a good place to start will be the 17th century, 18th century, with the development of the Gothic novel, and look at how the genre has evolved over the years. Um, I think it's important to point out that what we're really after here is the stories, the themes, um, social commentary, if there exists as such. Because I'm going to propose that the, the prose is a very fluid thing. And what I mean by that is that Prose changes with culture, changes with the reading culture, the literacy of a generation, um, and it's just something that when we're looking at works during that Gothic period, let's say perhaps someone's listening to this podcast and thinks, "Ah, this Gothic novel that uh, you know he, Kevin was talking about," and they go and read it, and you start. Banging your head against the, the 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 table after three or four paragraphs is really purple prose. One thing we want to keep in mind is there's gonna be a progression, a change in the prose. You know, so when I'm talking about these works, I really think we're gonna focus on the theme, the content, the message. You know, one of the litmus tests, basic litmus tests for a literary work is does it comment on the human existence doesn't comment on what it means to be human and a lot of these gothic novels i'm sure have many things to say about fears and dreams and beliefs and nightmares and good and evil The pros may not necessarily be for everybody, though. Um, So we want to keep that right in the forefront to just get that out of the way. Some of the pros may be a little bit harder to deal with, and it evolves. We're really looking at the stories themselves and the themes. So, given that legends and fairy tales and folklore, especially the Grimm Brothers Grimm, anyone ever read those fairy tales? They're fairly gruesome. Given the fact that all those tales... On to back to antiquity could be considered splinters of the horror genre. I think it's going to be best for us to start right there in that sweet spot that uh, Noel Carroll was citing—the 17th century, the 18th century, with the Age of Reason and the Age of Enlightenment. You know, and again, he he posed some uh, really interesting ideas that that would be a great place to situate the birth of the horror genre. Because you know, during that period there was a wide dissemination of the ideas of Descartes, Bacon, Locke, Hobbes, Newton, you know, all these ideas about science and reason and and separating it a lot from superstition and religion and things of the supernatural nature. And he was kind of throwing out those ideas, Noel Carroll was, that maybe this Gothic genre developed as kind of a counter to that. You know, if the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason is a time period that's marked by reason, science, nature, and that's it. It's ironic that the Gothic fiction uh, genre explores emotion Emotions, sometimes violent emotions, you know, with these gothic settings that may or may not necessarily be haunted by the supernatural. So Carol was very interested about how those two things overlap. So that may be the best place for us to start. And what I'm going to begin with, I believe, is uh, several gothic novels. I'm uh, going to be looking at The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. I believe I'm going to look at The Monk, by Matthew Lewis, and Vathek by William Beckford. And of course, we're going to have to have a discussion about Anne Radcliffe, because Anne Radcliffe also worked in that Gothic tradition. In fact, she has a really nice essay where she differentiates, even back then, between terror And horror. You know, she says that terror is that dread of anticipation. Don't know what's going to happen next. And it's the unseen that really inspires terror or that Where horror is the resulting emotion, whether we feel horror, a sense of revulsion at something that has happened. And that's even reading my brief exploration of those things before I started this podcast, even that for me as a writer was very illuminating. Because that right there, it splits up the horror genre, and all sorts of different factions and what kind of stories that can be told. So I believe that's where we're going to to start and begin, is by looking at those novels and looking at that time period. One thing we do want to keep in mind, though, like I said before, it would take a lot of research, a lot of time, to look back at the Enlightenment period. And can we do it, really? Can we decide, oh, these people were reading these novels because... Uh, and they were doing it as a concerted effort to rebel against the enlightenment we really can't do that you know it's going to be very very hard to do what we can do though is slowly look at these works of literature and look at the time period they were written in and try to make some connections you know uh for example H P Lovecraft there's a lot of people out there right now that really want to start considering him a literary writer. Now, again, if we go back to that, that definition of of something that's literary as as a work that makes a comment on the human experience, he was writing about the dangers of forbidden knowledge and that, 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 that there are things out there that we may not want to discover. And here he is writing um, in that time period where there's the Industrial Revolution and after that, and we're we're pushing all these advances in science and medicine and. Lovecraft maybe saying, wait, maybe we don't want to discover these things. So I think that's going to be the best thing that we can do, is to look at these works and track them how they change over uh, time. And also, I believe, we're going to throw a discussion out there about how we've come to this postmodern age. Uh, I recently did a a research project for graduate school on postmodern horror cinema. It's a different animal than the horror novel, but still, it's it's a different part of the same animal, I guess you could say. There's a a difference between postmodern horror which we could kind of consider the age that we're in now and where we came from. And th- when you're talking about going through the Vietnam War, going through those turbulent times, or looking at stuff during the 50s, um, both Noel Carroll and Stephen King had a lot to say about that in Dance Macabre, tracking the development of the horror genre against the backdrop of social climate of the time. You know, And I think, again... These are not necessarily things like a math equation, two plus two equals four, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. So I don't want to mislead anybody and think that well, I'm going to be trying to offer all these pad explanations for what this this uh, time period of the horror genre reflects this climate change is simply uh, an exploration of the horror genre as it's developed, and Obviously, social climate, social change is going to be an impact it 's going to be an impact on those things. So, what are my my reasons for doing this for sharing this all with you? One thing i 've always lamented a little bit is that I feel like i 've come onto the scene late in life, you know and uh, i don 't know what my ultimate destiny is as a writer. Uh, you know, how that's going to work out. But I know one thing that I I feel very intensely is the desire to share these things with other younger writers. You know, when I was in high school, there was no internet. You know, there's no way of finding out about these horror writers or anything like that. And even after I became interested in the horror genre, sure, the Internet was there. There's no Facebook. There's no MySpace. There's no Twitter. The forums. I just wasn't much of an Internet guy myself, so I had a hard time finding answers or finding knowledge. I worked in the dark in a vacuum. So I think probably the ultimate intention of this podcast series would be to examine the roots of the horror genre, and hopefully for young writers out there who was like I was 10 years ago, this will be Kind of something information for you. So you won't spend 10 years just reading the same three authors, kind of like I did. That you will get out there maybe a little bit earlier than I was able to and I can provoke some people to think this and think that. And again, one thing we also want to keep in mind too is that we read what we want to. And that's important. I always tell that to my English students that heaven forbid we ever stop reading for pleasure. We should always read for pleasure. And uh, I'm going to be going through a whole list of works of literature, and I'm not saying that these works of literature are the end-all of horror fiction. That you better read all these books and you better like them. Uh, And if you don't, then you're not a true horror fan. That's obviously not true. We have different works and different tastes, you know, and we also have different moods. There are times when we're in the mood for a really weighty, literary, thoughtful horror novel, or we're really in the mood for something fast and pulpy and vicious. So, right from the very outset here, I don't want to have, make that mistake that I'm giving you this list of books that all you bet folks better read, and if you don't, then you're not true horror fans. That's not the case at all. We're just going to be exploring works to stand out over the years, and hopefully, if you end up buying some of these works because I've recommended them or, or reading them and tracking them down. Great. Uh, even if you read some of these things and be like, oh, this is awful. I never want to write something like this. That in itself is informational. That in itself will help push you in a certain direction. And hopefully we can keep this light and uh, I won't stumble over my words too much, hopefully, and we'll have a good time and we'll get too boring. Um, and we may even, uh, depending on what Tales of uh, tales of Terrify wants to do, we may even talk about maybe email uh, suggestions or things like that but again hopefully our time together will be profitable uh, it'll be enjoyable uh, and also informational for everyone involved
1: Thanks, Kevin. I really am looking forward to this series as it grows and as it accretes a lot of information, a lot of background, a lot of history, a lot of the life of the genre. Kevin is a contributing editor for Shroud magazine. He's a blogger for The Midnight Diner. His short fiction has appeared in several anthologies. He's currently finishing his creative writing master's degree at Binghamton University. He teaches high school English and lives in Castle Creek, New York, with his wife and children. He's the author of Hiram Grange and the Chosen One, book four of the Hiram Grange Chronicles, and he's currently working on his first novel. As I say, I'm looking forward to this series, Kevin. All the best to you. Tonight's main story is from one of my delights in dark fantasy and horror, Nina Kariki Hoffman. As with Ray Bradbury and Zena Henderson, her worlds are always a pleasure for me to just fall into, and her characters are a delight, if sometimes a frightening delight. Her work always skirts the boundaries set by genre and book shelving, and takes us into melded realms of fantasy, horror, sometimes verging on science fiction and plain old good writing. Nina has been publishing her work since 1982 and has been nominated for World Fantasy, Endeavor, Philip K. Dick, Sturgeon, and other awards. She's won a Stoker, a Nebula, and what more can I say? Here from the 2008 anthology Better Off Undead is...
2: My Tears Have Been My Meat by Nina Karigi Hoffman I looked away from my husband's coffin, past the other mourners and the murmuring priest, and saw the white glimmer of a ghost over my daughter's grave. The day was cloudy and cool, and smelled of stale water and decaying flowers. I held a bouquet of white lilies. Their Easter odor made me feel faint. Mother had pressed them on me to give me something to do with my gloved hands— "'Before she handed me the flowers, "'I had not been able to stop tugging at the buttons "'on the cuffs of my black dress. "'One more twist and one of those will come off,' "'mother had muttered, "'and closed my hands around the lace-printed plastic, "'holding the lilies. "'We sorrow with our sister, Nicolette,' said the priest, "'but we hold out hope of heaven for our dear brother Joseph.' "'I clenched my fist around the flowers,' felt the strong stems crunch in my grasp. Joe and the hope of heaven? Not likely. But my daughter, Miranda, she should be in heaven by now. What was haunting her grave, and why? It wouldn't be proper for me to leave my husband's graveside in the middle of the service and go to my daughter's. I wanted to save Miranda from whatever might be bothering her, but I had never been able to do that in life. Why should anything be different now? Mother gripped my shoulder, pressed her thumb into the knotted muscles. She misinterpreted my tension, as usual, I supposed. Despite all evidence to the contrary, she thought Joe and I had had an ideal marriage. She had always liked him, relished the little attentions he paid her joe could be thoughtful if he decided it would gain him anything he had remembered mother's birthday her favorite cologne her taste in flowers and colors mother
0: here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com.
3: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: There was the one who had made all the funeral arrangements. I had been too shaken after Joe's death. Mother told me she and Joe had talked about his wishes at some point which I thought strange when I had any thoughts at all. She had picked a mortuary I had never heard of. Mother probably thought I was grieving for Joe now, when all I wanted was to see him buried so deep he couldn't come back. The gravedigger cast a shovelful of earth on Joe's coffin. I clenched the flowers tighter. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. "'the priest said. "'If Joe had ever been earth or dust or ashes, "'I would have been able to stand up to him. "'He had been flesh and blood and bone, "'muscular, taller and more powerful than I. "'Often enough, he had proved that to me. "'Worse, Joe had been mind. "'He had been able to outwit and disarm me with words "'even more than he had hurt me physically.' He convinced me he loved me while I watched the bruises color my skin. He convinced me that everyone we knew despised me and only tolerated me because I was inside the edge of Joe's golden aura. He convinced me that without him, I was nothing. He did it so well that after I poisoned him, I had thought I might fade away. I squeezed the lily stems again, taking comfort from their crunch. I was still solid. I shifted my shoulders, and my mother's hand slid off. Joe had followed Miranda into death. Oh, God, could he hurt her there? Was that why there was a ghost over my daughter's grave? The Lord be with you, the priest said and most among the mourners murmured the response, and with thy spirit. Let us pray, said the priest. I prayed while the priest led people in the Lord's Prayer and then talked his way through other prayers about love, God, Jesus, and mercy. I prayed Joe hadn't found some way to cheat death and come back to haunt me. He'd hinted at such a thing just before he died. Joe had lost his greatest power over me after he pushed Miranda down the stairs. It took me time to realize it, though. I spent ages in a gray world after my daughter died. I didn't care about anything except visiting my daughter's grave. Nothing could hurt me enough to punch through the walls I had built, not until I realized with dull shock that three months had gone by and the blood hadn't come. I used the home pregnancy test in a restroom at the local college where I did not attend classes. Joe went through our trash. I couldn't chance evidence at home. When I knew I had started another child, I woke up. Would the widow like to cast a flower on the coffin, asked the priest. I took one of the broken-stemmed lilies from the bunch and dropped it on Joe's coffin. He had always hated that scent. "'It's all right to cry, Nicky,' Mother murmured. "'I couldn't manage a tear. "'The gravedigger dropped more dirt into the grave. "'The priest took my hand, patted it, led me away. "'Wait!' I broke from him and went back to Miranda's grave. "'The specter no longer hovered above it. "'I wanted to leave Miranda a token.' I always did when I visited her. I held nothing but the lilies, and I didn't want to leave her one of those. I left one of my black lace gloves on the grave. I glanced around the graveyard to see if Randy, the night watchman, was nearby. He and I had to become friends since Miranda died, but of course he wasn't working now, in daylight. Curiosity hadn't brought him to my husband's funeral. There was a reception afterward, at Joe's and my house. Mother put the flowers from the service around the living room. I stood in the double doorway and looked into that room, the perfect place for Joe to have his business acquaintances over. The cream carpet was deep and nubbly. I had had it scotch-guarded while Joe was away from home. He would have been horrified that anything shielded his treasures from him, so I hadn't told him. There was a sculpture in one corner he had paid $25,000 for, a lumpy bronze pillar that reminded me of a fat woman wrapped in a metal cocoon. The couches were slim on padding, long on pale woods and shimmery off-white upholstery. The bleached coffee table's legs tapered to slender points. You couldn't put your feet up on any of this furniture. It seemed designed to break under pressure. Mixed with all this cool-colored distance, the various flower arrangements looked overblown and distasteful, though most of them were pale, or pastel, too. How Joe would have hated it. Mother had set up a buffet, a coffee urn, an array of white porcelain teacups and saucers, coffee whitener and artificial sweetener, and three plates of skinny, unadorned cookies. Not many of the mourners partook. Joe's mother and father, shadow shapes at the graveside service, came to me. I had left the lilies in the limousine. I found my bare hand tugging at the button on my opposite cuff as I strove to retrieve the comforting distance I'd maintained most of the day. Grace, Joe's thin, wispy mother, patted my arm. Her features crumpled like paper, her eyes leaking plentiful tears. Rudy, Joe's father, patted my shoulder. He was a big bluff man, eaten away with age. Every time he lifted a hand, Grace flinched. Nicolette, you're welcome to live with us, Grace said. She stopped patting my forearm and gripped it. Her fingers dug into my flesh like talons. That's right, honey. You just let everything go and come on home with us. "'We'll take care of you,' said Rudy. "'He stopped patting my shoulder and rubbed it instead, "'his big hand moving in small circles. "'His breath smelled of soured coffee. "'Nicolette will be fine,' Mother said. "'She drew me out of the clutches of Rudy and Grace, "'settled her arm around my waist. "'I'll stay here with her as long as she needs me. "'Is that what you want, honey?' Rudy asked." I nodded, though it wasn't remotely what I wanted. What I really wanted was to burn down the house and everything in it, collect all the money I was owed, Joe's life insurance, homeowners, everything. Then I would change my name and move somewhere else. I would hate to leave Miranda's grave, but to save the new child, I would move to where no one knew me. Nicolette, Joe's shadow wife, could die. I would give birth to a new self, one who could be a strong, protective mother. Child and I could live someplace warm, where there were colors. For now, having Mother around was much easier than dealing with Grace and Rudy. Rudy closed his hand on my shoulder, shook me. He didn't manage to shake me loose of Mother's embrace. You sure, doll? I nodded. Well... All right. Rudy's fingers pinched my shoulder muscles tight against the bone. I would have a bruise tomorrow. But anytime you need any little thing, doll, you call us. Grace and I feel like you're our responsibility. Finally, he let go. I leaned against Mother. Grace patted my cheek. At last, they left. Mother's arm around my waist felt like a lasso. "'I never liked that man,' she said. "'Thanks for saving me, Mother.' Her arm tightened, then dropped away. "'Well,' she said, "'let's go talk to the people who really loved Joe.' After that, I stood by the door and accepted condolences from Joe's business acquaintances and poker buddies. I heard murmurs from their women who whispered to each other, but not too softly. "'Not a single tear,' one said to another, and she didn't deserve a man like Joe. I had played bridge with them, barbecued for them and their husbands during the summer, cooked roasts and turkeys and potatoes for them in the winter. All the people Joe invited over so he could store up favors, people he had ordered me to cater to. I had never talked to them about anything real. Well, only one. "'Helena Whitaker. "'After Miranda died, I had had to talk to someone, "'and she sat beside me during Miranda's funeral. "'Her black-gloved hand rested over mine on the pew between us. "'Joe sat on my other side, his face buried in a white handkerchief. "'I was surprised later when I found it in the laundry. "'Damp. "'I tasted it and found salt. "'Real tears.' During Miranda's funeral, I had been so bowed under the weight of my own grief, I had no time for what Joe was feeling. Only the warmth from Helena's hand had penetrated my shell. Later, Helena found me in the restroom of the funeral home. I had cried. She laid a handkerchief over her shoulder and put her arms around me, let me sob, listened to my wails of why... When I was exhausted and had run out of tears, she carefully folded up the tear-soaked handkerchief and stowed it in her coat pocket. We left the restroom together. She stood beside me as I faced Joe. I reached for the strength she had loaned me. Instead, I saw her nod to my husband and turn away. As she left the house today, she studied me, her head cocked. Her lips firmed. She shook her head, brushed my hand, and slipped out the door, her huge and befuddled husband stumbling down the steps in her wake. The others left, couple by couple. "'You should get some sleep,' Mother said. I let her push me upstairs. She drew a warm bath for me, the first time she had done that in an age, and pulled my clothes off gently. I felt boneless, passive. She settled me in the water, then brought me a mug of warm milk. "'Drink this,' she said. "'It'll help you sleep.' The milk tasted strange, a little sour, though she had put honey in it. I took one sip and poured the rest into the toilet when she was out of the room. I didn't flush, because she would have noticed. I just closed the lid." Mother bustled about between the bathroom and her guest bedroom. She muttered to herself. She looked at the empty milk mug and smiled. Are you relaxed yet, dear? she asked. I closed my eyes. Yes, I murmured. Well, let's get you to bed. She helped me stand, and I needed help. I felt limp, dried me off, wrapped me in a robe, and dragged me into the master bedroom, where she had turned down the sheets on the wrong side of the king bed I had shared with Joe. But that's, I tried to tell her. She pushed me down onto the bed, and I thought, why fight it? Mother worked the covers over me, then tucked them in so tight I couldn't move. She kissed me on the forehead and turned out the light. Rest well, she said. After the door clicked softly shut, I worked my arms free of the cocoon she had wrapped me in and jerked the covers loose. I so wanted to sleep. I had waited years for a night free of Joe's presence or the menace of his potential presence. But I had to go back to the cemetery and check on my daughter's grave. Mother was a light sleeper, and I knew she was listening to make sure I was quiet and controlled. I slipped from the bed, stepping carefully on the throw rug Joe kept by his side of the bed. He had hated cold feet. That obsession helped me now by muffling my steps so Mother couldn't hear. I crept to the closet and pulled out my longest, warmest coat. It covered my nightgown from neck to mid-calf. I grabbed a pair of fleece-lined winter boots, hugged them to my chest as I slipped out the door. Down the hall, a line of light striped the floor beside Mother's room. She had left her door open a crack. To listen for me, I thought, and was surprised at the rush of bitterness that flooded through me. I heard murmuring from her room. Was she talking on the phone? but she was speaking so low. Did she actually have a visitor? If she did have a visitor and wanted to keep it secret, she should close her door. I wavered between creeping closer and listening to see whom she was talking to and leaving. But finally, I opted for leaving. I had to check with Miranda. Three of the stairs would creak if I stepped on them. I knew this from the nights when Joe passed out in front of the television downstairs, and I snuck down to check on him and contemplate covering his head with a pillow. After a few times when he wasn't passed out enough to ignore me, I figured out how to walk the stairs without alerting anyone to my presence. I used this knowledge a lot after Miranda's death when I went to visit her. The front door was a problem. It creaked when anyone opened it, even though I had oiled the hinges. Sometimes I thought it wanted to let everyone know how unhappy it was. I went to Joe's study and slid the big window open. Silent. He'd paid a carpenter extra to smooth the window's glide. He liked things smooth. I was sure he left the front door creaky just to keep track of me. I sat on the sill and put my boots on, then dropped to the flower bed below. I wasn't going to be able to get back in through the window. It was too high off the ground. I had my key in my pocket, but I would probably spend the night on one of the chaises on the patio. I'd done it before. The cemetery was five blocks from the house. We hadn't bought the house with that in mind, but after Miranda's death, I had walked out my bereavement on the sidewalks between our house and the cemetery. I knew the cracks in the cement, the staples on the telephone poles that bore witness to missing animals and party plans people had wanted to broadcast to the neighborhood. I knew which dogs barked when someone passed, "'Joe had never known where I went on my frequent walks, "'but still he had resented them and tried to stop me. "'He wanted to take away anything that meant anything to me, "'but I had often managed to slip out for moments at Miranda's grave. "'I gave her my tears. "'I zigzagged between sidewalks tonight "'to avoid all houses with barking dogs "'and made it to the cemetery without problems.' There was a place in the hedge I knew to slip through. Vandals had found it before me, and Randy, the night watchman, checked it regularly. Tonight he was nearby, leaning on a headstone and smoking a clove cigarette. Mrs. B, he said. Thought I might see you tonight. How's it going? Not so well, Randy. Mr. B, he said. That got you broke up? He sounded doubtful. Randy knew me. No, it's Miranda. Oh? He followed me as I headed for my daughter's grave. Do you see ghosts, Randy? Hear them now and then. At least I think that's what makes that talk in the ground. I'm walking past a lot of graves of a night, and sometimes there's a murmuring. I figure it's ghosts sorting stuff out, but I don't listen too close. None of my business. I saw something like a ghost during the funeral today. What did it look like? Something pale over Miranda's grave. I have to see if she's all right. Okay. He turned on his 4D cell flashlight and lit the path for us. No hesitations. We'd come this way before. Randy had a gentleness to him. For a big man, he was careful. He never touched me except to grasp my elbow if it looked like I was about to trip. He knew how to be silent when a person wanted to disappear inside oneself. And he knew how to be company when one was walking away from a grave and having trouble pulling oneself out of the ground. He never mocked me. Randy was the closest thing I had to a friend and a counselor. I wished I could help him, but I didn't know how. Maybe Joe had left me something good, something I could give to Randy. Want to be alone, Mrs. B? Randy asked. The flashlight shone on the words, Miranda Broussard, beloved daughter. She is in a better place now. No, Randy. Thanks. I'd rather have you with me, if you can stay. He glanced around the cemetery, away from the cone of light from his flashlight. It was a half-moon night, mist rested in rags here and there. I didn't see any movement. Go ahead, said Randy. I knelt, my knees on the grass over my daughter's grave. There lay the dark glove I had dropped earlier in the day. Miranda, I whispered, what troubles you? How can I help? Mama, whispered someone under the ground, run away. What do you mean? Run away, Mama. He's coming back. I glanced behind me toward Joe's grave, where fresh, mounded earth lay, a little too tall for the ground and not yet covered with squares of turf. How can that be, I whispered. I put my hands flat on my daughter's grave. This was the first time I had heard her voice since Joe killed her. I felt a terrified delight. Miranda, are you all right? Randy switched off his flashlight, leaving us in darkness. Someone's coming. I hid behind my daughter's headstone. Randy moved to a nearby tree and blended his silhouette with its shadow. Someone in black was approaching. A faint breath of perfume traveled before her. I recognized Mother by the scent of white shoulders. She looked large in the darkness. She was wearing some shapeless overgarment with no arms and at her side she carried a bulky bag. I gripped the edge of Miranda's rough-hewn granite stone. Mother stopped at Joe's grave, dropped the bag. She rummaged through it, came up with three candles, and lit them. She dripped wax onto a white plate and stood the candles upright on it. They glowed red. She laid other things out before her, "'But I couldn't see what, except a white square of cloth, "'a handkerchief, which she snapped open. "'Her tears,' she muttered. "'I remembered Helena Whitaker's nod to my husband "'after I cried on her shoulder. "'Had Joan known even then that this day would come? "'Sent Helena to collect my grief over the loss of my daughter? "'Who was the man I had married?' I'm sorry, Joseph, Mother said after she had arranged things on my husband's grave. I don't know what's become of her. I drugged her milk the way we planned, but she didn't drink it. She's out roaming around like the faithless girl she's always been. My blood will do just as well. Run, whispered Miranda. I couldn't let go of the chill rock. I couldn't rise and run. Mother started a small fire on Joe's grave. I could see the dancing light on her face. She chanted, held things up to the night sky, then dropped them into the fire. One of them glowed in the darkness, the handkerchief. Had my mother always been a witch? How could I not have known? Cold invaded my clothes, chilled my feet. Joe had said something at breakfast the day before I poisoned him, something that frightened me, something about our wedding vows lasting beyond the grave. You'll always be mine. Always, Nicolette. Part of me had thought, why do you even want me when you think so little of me? Part of me had thought, this has to stop now before he knows about child. I can't bring child into this kind of bondage. What if mother could bring Joe back? If he was somewhere beyond dead, could he die again? Would I ever be rid of him? What would he do to child? Mother lifted a knife that gleamed in the flickering light. She cut across her left forearm, held her arm so the blood flowed, black and wet in the firelight, onto the grave. Run, Miranda whispered again. Mother's murmurs rose louder. I heard words, but I didn't understand them until she said, All the conditions are now fulfilled. Joseph, rise, walk again with death at your shoulder. A great shifting in the dirt, as though from below something opened a door. My pale, embalmed husband sat up out of the ground. My mother reached down to help him out of his grave. In the flickering light of the small fire, he looked ghastly, his eyes black pits, his hair perfect, his face catching hell's orange from the flames. Soon enough, he had gained solid ground and was dusting grave dirt from the pleats of his pants. "'Thank you, Trudy,' said my husband. "'That was quite refreshing.' He grabbed my mother around the waist and pulled her to her feet, then pressed his lips against her mouth. She tried to scream, but his kiss muffled her. She struggled in his grasp for a little while, then went limp. A few moments later, he dropped her. Well preserved, he said, and wiped the back of his hand across his mouth. Fine wine. She aged well. Nicolette? I could not move, even for child. No, I had to move for child, but I felt frozen solid. I could not rise. Joseph walked past the red candles on his grave, strode toward our daughter's grave. Too late now, whispered Miranda. I'll be with you, I whispered. No, she said. You aren't dying in innocence. You won't come where I am. Wherever you go, though, remember I love you. No use trying to hide, Joseph said. I can smell you, Nicky. He took a deep sniff. Ah, lilies. When did you start wearing the smell of lilies, Nicky? It doesn't suit you. I felt dried, a husk, an empty cocoon. I had killed my husband and changed my direction. Miranda told me that I was a night creature, a moth, while she was a butterfly, a creature of day. We would be in two different worlds after I died. Take care of child, I whispered. I will, whispered my daughter's spirit. You should smell of almonds and orange blossoms, said my husband. He reached behind Miranda's headstone, grabbed my shoulder, and hauled me to my feet. How long did you plan my death, my dear? You should have spent more time. I didn't suffer. Very little art was involved. I always hoped I'd have a more dignified murder. Sorry, I whispered to the ground. I should fight. I should fight for child. But then I thought, child, half his and half mine. I am a murderer, and this man, my husband, is worse. Perhaps it would be a mercy to child to die now. Oh, well, you undoubtedly did the best you could. It's all of a piece. Pitiful. And now you pay. I'll need souls to sustain me in my new state and a wife to help me survive. Pathetic, though your help has always been. I need to bind you to me again. Give me a kiss. He set his lips on my neck, and their touch was the chill behind chill. He sucked the warmth up through my skin. I closed my eyes, wondering what he was doing to me. He pressed his lips to mine and breathed into my mouth a taste of rot and darkness, a hint of desire, a sullied joy. I wanted to spit out the taste, but he pinched my nose until I had to breathe it in. My stomach lurched. Below it, I felt a flutter. Joe was changing me again. What was he doing to child? The clunk of Randy's flashlight connecting with my husband's head came as a shock to both of us. My husband staggered back, and Randy struck him again and again. Get back, you freak, he cried. Mrs. B, go now, he shoved me. I ran, though I feared it was too late. At the gap in the hedge, I looked back, saw that Joe was choking Randy. Randy, who had been kinder to me than anyone else after Miranda died. Randy's arms flailed, but he couldn't seem to get a grip on Joe. Joe leaned forward, pressed his mouth to Randy's shoulder. I remembered the chill he had breathed under my skin. I should protect child, but perhaps it was too late for both of us. Randy deserved help, too. He hadn't polluted his life with bad choices, as far as I knew. I ran back, stopping only long enough to pick up a stick under a cedar tree. Joe, I said just before I hauled off and hit his head with the stick. I beat his back, jabbed at his face until his mouth loosed from Randy's shoulder. He turned to me, annoyed, but he didn't let go of Randy's neck. Randy was limp now, his head sagging. Leave the boy alone. I'm the one you want. Joe laughed. He released Randy, who collapsed in a coughing heap on the ground. I want you, and I want a hundred more. I'll need new people every night. I'll have you in a different way. I'll finish what I've started, and then you'll never be able to leave me. He reached for me, and I hit him with the stick. He laughed again, wrenched the stick from my grasp, and crushed it in his hand. You don't understand what I've become, he said. He embraced me. His arms were cold and heavy, but he did not hug too hard the way he had before he died. I felt as though clay had risen from a pit and wrapped itself around me, and I thought, oh well, maybe this is all I deserve. Was it all child deserved? I tried to lift my arms, push Joe away, but the weight of his embrace trapped me tight he would let go of me. Once he had changed me, he would let go of me, and I would find a way to hurt him. He would turn his back on me sometime. I kindled anger inside me, fed it the stored fuel of all my rage at how Joe had treated me. My anger held back the invading chill of Joe's kiss. To protect child to protect all the other people Joe might hurt, I would find a way to stop him. I smelled something burning, the fuel not wood but cloth. I opened my eyes. Light flickered behind Joe, and then flames raced up the back of his best jacket, spread across his shoulders, ate into his hair. He released me and staggered back, with a cry like the screech of metal scraping across metal. He dropped to the ground and rolled on his back, but it was too late. His hair was alight. The smell changed to scorched hair and cooking flesh, at once repulsive and almost inviting, and the flames ran over him like water. I swayed, took a step to steady myself. Randy was on his feet. He came around Joe's rolling, rocking, screaming body with its consuming flames, put his arms around me, supported me, and pulled me away. We staggered toward the gatehouse. The flicker of Joe's fire stained the headstones as we passed them. Randy led me around back of the gatehouse. For the first time, I saw his apartment, a small room with attached kitchenette. He settled me in the one chair, an ancient red cracked leather lazy boy filled a kettle from the tap and put it on the hot plate. He settled on the bed nearby, facing me, his elbows on his thighs and his big hands dangling between his knees. His neck was a mass of bruises in the shapes of fingers and palms. Joe had ripped open his uniform. There was a blood-dark mark on Randy's shoulder where Joe had kissed him. I pressed my hands to my belly, where child rested, infinitesimal yet. Had Joe's touch killed child or changed child into something other than human? My mouth still tasted foul, and my stomach roiled. I put my hand over my mouth. Randy opened a closed door, revealed a tiny bathroom with commode, sink, and shower. I went in and threw up. He offered a glass of water to me when I had finished retching. I rinsed and spat, rinsed and spat. I couldn't get the moldy taste out of my mouth, but my stomach settled. Shadows still clouded, my thoughts. Randy helped me into his chair. I leaned back and closed my eyes. Presently, he touched my shoulder and handed me a mug of herbal tea. Peppermint, he rasped. Settle your stomach. Thank you. Thank you, Randy, for everything. Yeah, well, he drank from his own mug. Coughed, lit up another clove cigarette with a lighter that had a Harley-Davidson logo on it. My salvation. You get some rest, Mrs. B. I gotta go tidy up. Hate these revenant nights. The bad ones are always messy. You want I should bury your ma with your husband? I swallowed my surprise, thought, then said, Yes, all right. More tea in the pot on the table if you want some, and sugar too. Don't you worry, Mrs. B. Sleep if you can. He put a blanket over me and went out. I huddled under the blanket and thought again of the dark charge Joe had sent through me with his kiss. Had it reached, child? I hoped not.
1: Thank you for letting us have that, Nina. Along with Alan Clark, Bruce Holland Rogers, and seemingly an endless stream of other writers and artists, Nina Kariki Hoffman is one of those people who live in the Pacific Northwest and manage to take that magic of place and put it on the page. And by the way, I recommend her Magic Next Door series. It's a young adult series, but everybody will like it. Meeting and Thresholds are the two titles to date. Oh, and don't forget Spirits That Walk in Shadow. Don't forget The Thread That Binds the Bones. Don't forget A Red Heart of Memories. A Stir of Bones. The Silent Strength of Stones. Well, see what I mean? Best to you, Nina. And thanks again. I'd love to get more from you. And thank you, Christy Peterson Schoonover, for your narration of this story. Uh, Christy holds a B.A. in Creative Writing and Literature from Burlington College in Vermont and an M.F.A. in Creative Writing from Goddard College. Her short fiction has been featured in The Adirondack Review, Barbaric Yop, The Illuminata, Chick Flicks, Afternoon, The Circle, Citizen Culture, I Like Monkeys, New Witch Magazine, and lots, lots, lots more. She's an editor for Read Short Fiction and the recipient of Norman Mailer Writers' Colony Winter 2010-2011 and, and 2012 Residencies. Her Skeletons in the Swimming Hole, Tales from Haunted Disney World, a collection of ghost stories set, of all places, in Disney parks, is now available at all one word, com. It's also on Amazon and all the usual outlets under the imprint Admit One Literary Theme Park Press. Her horror novel, Bad Apple, is forthcoming from Vagabondage Books this coming winter. And God, I look forward to this coming winter. Christie's also the host of the Dead Letters Paranormal Fiction segment on The Ghostman and Demon Hunter Show. We have one more little treat for you tonight. Just something to get you ready for the homeward hike toward your empty house. Here's Jonah Knight with Empty House.
6: On these shattered window frames, only splashed. Another body found The graveyard's running out of empty ground Mystery to her This empty house Isn't empty after all Late at night You can hear things in the walls Your shallow grave Isn't deep enough at all To keep your ghost underground Of this house has been spread far and wide. But now I've got the address, so won't you wish me well? Or I'm off to burn this house back to heaven.
1: Allow me to quote Mr. Knight. He says, my name is Jonah Knight, and I play paranormal modern folk with a little bit of supernatural steampunk. Jonah's songs feature ghosts, monsters, heroes, and villains. They range through space and time, and he cites Cthulhu, Twin Peaks, the Legion of Superheroes, Scooby-Doo, as lifelong influences that just seem to bubble out of his work. He plies his art and craft at science fiction conventions around the Mid-Atlantic area, and he's looking for other interesting spots to perform. So, if you have any thoughts, drop him a note through his website, which you can find on our site below, or leave a message for him on the Tales to Terrify forum. You know how much I keep encouraging people to use the forum. So, use it for that, okay? Okay. Elizabeth Campbell, a friend of the show, recommended Jonah's work to us. This song in particular nudged a few chords in my memories. Uh, My grandfather, the pop-up of earlier reference, died when I was about 10, and I took over his bedroom. Soon thereafter, a cricket took up residence in the wall, just outside the door. I, I am not quite sure why, but for all the time... That cricket lived and chirped through the night there. I barely slept. It terrified me for reasons known only to me and the cricket. I imagined all manner of things about sounds in the walls in a house where a man had just died. Well, on that note, children of the night, return your mugs to the rack, shoo the cats from your lap, wrap your sweaters round your waists, it's too hot to wear them out there and get ready to feel the night. Your walk home shouldn't be too bad, though. There there might be a bit of a breeze off the lake this time of night. It's somehow darker out there than usual. Wonder why. Hmm. Well, maybe it's just the mood. Maybe I'm sorry to see you go. I am. Ah. Well, you'll be back, yes? If you make it home, yes, and you will. You'll get back to your empty houses, to the dark of the night, into the depths of sleep, where I know you'll have pleasant dreams. Hmm...